Okay. Hello and howdy, Huda Thunkers, to episode 125 of the Huda Thunked podcast. I'm your host, Zeb, here. Um, this episode is titled Napoleon and His Tendon. Originally, I was going to call it Napoleon's Schlong, which would indicate it's just about one specific thing, Napoleon's Schlong. Uh, but then, I don't know, it, 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 it pivoted a bit as I was writing it, because Napoleon's an interesting dude. Before we get into it, let's do that recommendation segment uh, this week. This week's recommendation is pretty short, as the episode's uh, main event is quite long. I recommend you listen to and see live the band Greta Van Fleet. The sound, uh, they sound a lot like Led Zeppelin, which is um, how I sort of, you know, what category I put them in my mind before I went to see them live this past weekend. I thought, yeah, they sound like a lot like Zed Le- Led Zeppelin, um, almost exactly like, oh, it's cool, whatever. Uh, but Led Zeppelin was a good band, but not always, eh, whatever. Then I saw them open for Metallica, and while all openers and Metallica themselves kicked ass, I had a great time. Uh, I personally think Greta Van Fleet impressed me the most. I even heard my stepdad, who's been a huge Metallica fan forever, say, yeah, I think performances this evening, I hate to say it, but I think it was Greta Van Fleet was better. Uh, their performance was transcendent. You know, I, the first adjective that came to word that came to mind other than great, incredible, all those other really hollow um, <laughs> compliments or adjectives was angelic. The way they played their instruments, the way the, the lead vocalist sang, it felt angelic. It felt like something special, like I was watching something special. So... I, uh, which is, that's the best case scenario when you see a concert. You feel like it's, you're not just watching some people play music. You're seeing some, you're seeing history in the making. So I just started listening to them. Um, but a song that I have already fallen in love with is Heat Above. Just the word heat, the words heat above. Check that out. YouTube link is on the blog. Um, they have such a cool 70s rock vibe and they're amazing. And holy hell, can that dude sing. And holy hell, can that dude play the guitar? It's amazing. You gotta check him out. Now for the main event, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, later known by his reg- regional name, Napoleon I, uh, was a French military and political leader who rose to prominence during the French Revolution and led several successful campaigns during the Revolutionary Wars. His life is full of some of the greatest stories in history. Napoleon Bonaparte, from 1769 to 1821, also known as Napoleon I, was a French military leader and emperor who conquered much of Europe in the early 19th century. 19th century refers to the 1800s. So I'll clear that up when people say centuries. Like if I say the 17th century, I'm not talking about the 1700s. I'm talking about 1600s. That's like right now we're in the 21st century. In the year 2022, we are in the 21st century. The 20th century is the 1900s. Clear that up. People get confused. Anyway, uh, so he, he conquered much of Europe during the 19th century, which is the 1800s. Born on the island. If you want to know why that's the case, I mean, I might be wrong, but I thought it was pretty simple. The people in the first century were living in the year, you know, 1 to, you know, 58. The year 58 is in the first century. It's the first century in the, in the common era, but it doesn't have a 1 in front of it. So once they got past 100 years, that's the second century. I just thought I'd clear that up. Anyway, (laughs) he tore shit up in Europe in the 19th century. Born in the island of Corsica, Napoleon rapidly rose through the ranks of the military during the French Revolution. That was from 1789 to 1799. It was during this time period that his reputation went from 
a fan favorite star to supernova status. I mean, he went from a pretty cool dude in the government to holy heck, this dude's important. The French Revolution was a period of radical political and societal change in France that began with the Estates General of 1789 and ended with the formation of the French Consulate in November of 1799. The French Revolution is its own thing. Lots of radical political uprisings happened, and it was even crazier than America's Revolution. People got their heads chopped off by this cool new invention you might have heard of, the guillotine. Uh, <laughs> pretty cool there. And it was during this time of chaos that Napoleon rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the former monarchy to take hold of France's future with an iron grip. He was a badass. Got some pretty cool paintings of the French Revolution on here. Just realized one of the paintings has a lady's titties out. I didn't, I didn't realize that when I put it on the blog, but that's okay. And none of my audience is under the age of 18, so who cares? Uh, but if you are under the age of 18, you know, watch, listen to this and look at all my stuff with a parent, I guess. Whatever the parental advisory, but whatever. Starting in 1792, the new revolutionary government, still in its infancy, was caught up in all sorts of military conflicts with all sorts of European nations and coalition of European allies. So not just nation to nation. France was in, like, let's say France was in its thick with, like, a, a, a conglomerate of like Prussia, Russia, uh, Austria, all that stuff. It was in 1795 that Napoleon helped shut down a royalist insurrection in Paris. So the royalists at this time, they were the ones who wanted to go back to the monarchy that had just been overthrown by the revolution. And Napoleon said, hell no, this revolutionary government is what I'm all about. I don't need your royalist mucking it up. Uh, for Napoleon's efforts, he was promoted to major general. So... Pretty cool, pretty cool, pretty cool title, Major General. Our boy Napoleon led the French army to victory in 1796 over the Austrians, who were one of France's biggest rivals. They hated the Austrians. And you'll hear the Austrian name mentioned a lot. He used kicking the crap out of the Austrians as a, a, a little uh, public figure boost many times throughout his career. So the Austrians, not really liked by the French. And um, this led to the signing of the Treaty of Campo Formio, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, and that ended the fighting and gave France a... Uh, <laughs> I misspelled French. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it gave France a whole lot of land. So he kicked the crap out of the Austrians. He made them sign a treaty that brought about peace. People usually like peace after a war, so they, you know, Napoleon's really popular, but also gave France more land. So after all these military successes, the um, directory... That's, that's five dudes that had been running France's revolutionary government since 1795. The directory, think of them as like the head government or like a, uh, like temporary government during the revolutionary period. But the directory uh, decided to give Napoleon permission to invade England. They're like, yo, dude, go invade England. Um, age old enemy of the French. But Napoleon knew that would be a dumb move. England is an island and had the greatest naval power in the, in the world at the time. Um, now it is the United States has the greatest naval power, and it, that does change throughout history. But at the time, for a long time, England had one heck of a navy. And Napoleon's like, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. So instead, instead, he decided, but he still wanted to, to flip the bird to the English. So instead, he decided to bash some skulls down in Egypt. Egypt was a major part of England's trade with India. And, you know, India was the crown jewel of the English Empire at the time. They loved India. They got so much out of them. And, you know... Messing up their trade route with India would greatly cripple the English. 
and Napoleon's troops, who by now were becoming his ultra-loyal badass fighting force, stomped all over the Egyptian Mamluks. That's the military rulers down there. At one of the coolest battle names in recent history, the Battle of the Pyramids in July of 1798. I think the Battle of the Pyramids just paints a beautiful picture of crap going on once up against the backdrop, one of the coolest monuments, the coolest uh, wonders of the world. But this victory didn't last long. You see, England didn't take too kindly to Napoleon crippling their trade with India, and so they took their super powerful navy and basically stranded the French troops down in the Egyptian desert after the Battle of the Nile in August of 1798. So Napoleon did have victory, um, but didn't, didn't last long. The very next year, not satiated with all the fighting thus far, Napoleon decided he liked the look of the Ottoman Empire. If you don't know what the Ottoman Empire is, it's 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 around where all, you know the Middle East is. But back then, they were all it was they were huge. The Ottoman Empire is pretty cool, pretty cool history, and a bunch of the countries that are there now today were all together in the huge Ottoman Empire um, in the land of Syria, what is now Syria. He went over there, fought the Ottomans. He tried to invade, but lost in his attempt to lay siege to Acre, uh, which is modern day Israel. That is when Napoleon decided to make a strategic move based on the political atmosphere at the time to straight up abandon his army in Egypt and bounce right on back to France in the summer of 1799. Now, why would he do this? Why would he leave his troops in Egypt and be like, yo, I know you guys love me. His troops worshipped him. I know you guys love me. We win all the time (laughs) in France. You... France usually loses all the time, but with me, we we start winning some, so you guys love me. Why would he abandon him? Well, uh, because that fall, November of 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte was a major part of the coup of 18 Brumaire, a Brumaire, a uh, famous coup where Napoleon overthrew those five dudes who'd been running the French revolutionary government known as the Directory I mentioned earlier. He overthrew them. In the Directory's place was a three-person consulate, and Napoleon as first consul, which put him at the very tippy top of uh, France's new government now. So he's pretty important. The consulate, that's a thing that, that's from ancient Rome. So that's pretty, you know, interesting there. The next summer, in June of 1800, Napoleon led French forces to victory over the pesky Austrians. Again, this made the French public love him even more as they hated the Austrians kicking the Austrians out of Italy and brokering a peace with the English through the Treaty of Amiens in 1802 was a massive boost for his public opinion rating. He The, the peace with the English didn't last long, lasted like a year, but still, he had peace with the English for a while. One of the things that sets Napoleon apart from other conquerors is that he did take the time to make sure his nation was doing well. That's um, Not all conquerors do that. Genghis Khan did. He had a really cool nation. Napoleon did too, and that makes him one of the greatest conquerors ever. He made sure the government was set up right and efficiently. He updated France's banking system, education, science, and art. France was widely a Catholic nation, yet the country had been on rocky ground with the Vatican lately, so he broed it up with the Pope to uh, smooth that relationship over as well. So his people were loving him. France just lost a lot of wars a lot of time, (laughs) lost a lot of battles. Napoleon shows up. They start kicking butts all over Europe. He starts making their money more secure, their education better, so they're more enlightened, their science and art, so they, you know, all the hoity-toities of the the country were like, we love all this art you're bringing back. He made it so that the religion was more on better terms with the, the Vatican, 
And yeah, people loved him. Arguably the best thing he did to further his nation was introduced in the Napoleonic Code. This code that made the French legal system much more efficient. The code was so well written that it is the basis for the French legal system still to this day. Uh, so pretty important. Napoleon didn't just kick ass all over Europe. He also enhanced his own culture, which is a lot easier to do when you just keep getting land and winning victories. All these improvements and military accomplishments gave Napoleon all sorts of political power. So in 1802, there was a constitutional amendment that allowed him to keep the title of first consul, that tippy-tippy-top government role, for life. Which seems like kind of like an invitation to corruption to me. I mean, I don't think any political thing should be for life. Looking at you, Supreme Court of the U.S., you shouldn't be able to have something for life. There should be term limits. But, you know, this is the 1700s, so I kind of get it. 1800s, sorry. Now we're getting into the 1800s. But... That wasn't enough. Just two years later, in the year of 1804, a big bougie-ass ceremony was held in the Cathedral Notre-Dame de Paris. It was Napoleon's crowning ceremony as the Emperor of France. So first consul wasn't enough. First consul for life wasn't enough. He now is the Emperor of France, crowned himself. Cue the Empirical March music from Star Wars. Dum, 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 da, dum, dum, da, dum. Yeah. You thought first console for life? I thought that was corrupted. Well, now he's the Emperor. Okay. So, what what a badass title. I, I can imagine if I was in Napoleon's shoes, I would let all that power go straight to my head. Funny enough, I kind of look a little bit like Napoleon, I've been told, because I have the same have the same exact height but which is five foot seven he's known for being crazy short it's actually like the national average <laughs> he's not that short how was napoleon i, I guess i'm biased though because i'm the same height <laughs> but i don't my height doesn't bother me i don't think i have a napoleon complex but then again i wouldn't know it would i i don't know you tell me who the thunkers anyway how was napoleon as his he's emperor now what did he do with that title well, of course <laughs> he let his ego run wild <laughs> So there you go. Uh, well, the little feisty little bastard had nowhere else to go in his own government. He was at, I mean, you, you can't get any higher than emperor unless you start calling yourself the supreme being or some craziness. But he wasn't that crazy. He had become the emperor, nowhere else to go up. So he wasn't satisfied with first consul for life, the tippy top of the heap. He wasn't satisfied with emperor. Um, so he then had to create a new title and crown himself emperor. So what do you think he did? He took all that aggression and went back to expanding outwards. Nowhere left to go up in his own government, so he's going to spread out. It's a very simple way of looking at it, but accurate. That's when this testosterone-filled pipsqueak decided to go on a 12-year series of military campaigns that would come to be known as the Napoleonic Wars. The dude has not one, but a series of wars named after him. All the other conflicts we said earlier, there was reason for it. He quelled the Royalist Uprising. He fought the Austrians because, you know, the Austrians and the French hated each other. The English and the French, long-standing, whatever. The Napoleonic Wars was kind of like him just swinging, at, swinging for the fences, you know, just <laughs> fighting everybody. The Napoleonic Wars, put simply, was France versus Europe. Napoleon would lead his ultra-badass loyal soldiers who had been fighting with him for over a decade now into wars against entire coalitions of European allies. He wasn't just fighting a nation at a time like mano a mano he was taking on two three four countries at a time and winning 
here are some highlights of the Napoleonic War. And you'll notice they're not all wins, but <laughs> for France, it's pretty good. To fund all this, uh, before we get into the, some of his, his his wars and battles, to fund all this, amongst other things, the five foot seven ruler sold the large expanse of land known as the Luigi, Luigi, Louisiana Territory to the baby nation overseas known as the United States of America for $15 million. That translated to today's money of about $400 million today. This would come to be known as the Louisiana Purchase and was one hell of a bargain for the USA. They sold it to them pennies on the dollar. The amount of land that, they, that the U.S. got for $15 million, it's insane. You know, this doubled the size of the U.S. They just bought, they bought enough land to double their nation for $15 million. The reason why France, there you go, I wrote it again, France. The reason why France sold the ter territory, a huge swath of land, at such a low cost could be an entire episode on its own. Such a complex story with violence and political maneuvering and the U.S. and France and Haiti and, and all that and, and, and definitely involving slavery, too. But anyway, he did. And that $15 million went directly into funding his Napoleonic Wars. I do have a map of the Louisiana Territory on the blog here. It is a massive amount of land stretching from Alberta, Canada to New Orleans. It's huge. Now, the Battle of Trafalgar in October of 1805 is when England's superior naval fleet wiped Napoleon's fleet off the map. But just two months later, he decimated the Austrian and Russian forces at the Battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon beat those Austrian and Ruski so bad it would uh, wind up taking the Holy Roman Empire off the board and created the Confederation of the Rhine. So the Holy Roman Empire, that's not ancient Rome. It was like a big conglomerate based out of like Germany. It's I don't know too much about it, but it's basically German people, a huge German nation calling themselves the Holy Roman Empire. He wiped it off the map, just got rid of it and created something called the Confederation of the Rhine. So this confederation was an alliance of various German states that served as a satellite and major uh, military ally of the French Empire with Napoleon as its quote-unquote protector and was created to be like a buffer state from an, any future aggression from the Austrian, Austria, Russia, or Prussia against France. It's a similar idea as to the Iron Curtain when Russia... Uh, after World War II, kept all those nations in between them and NATO countries. Similar idea. Buffer. Used many times about, throughout history. Napoleon was doing what he did best, carving up Europe like a Thanksgiving turkey. Where Napoleon couldn't invade England or even dream of beating them at sea, he did find victory at beating them at economics. He came up with an idea to cripple the Brits by strangling them of their foreign imports. Like we said earlier, when the directory gave him permission to invade England, he said, no, 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 no. We're going to invade Egypt. It's going to screw up their trade. That'll that'll hurt them way more than us just losing them at sea. Well, he's doing that again now, but it's a lot more uh, elegant, I would say, an elegant maneuver here. He came up with the idea to cripple the British, strangling their foreign imports, a strategy that would later be used by one, a one Adolf Hitler during World War II. Napoleon's strategy was known as the continental system of European port blockades against British trade. So he got a bunch of other countries to help him to basically uh, strangle England of all their trade and imports. You know, they're an island. The resources they have are limited. So that's why they stretched out everywhere. Note to self, if at war with England, the only hope of winning is to isolate the island and wait them out. 
see how long they can survive on fish and chips before they start turning on each other and feasting on their precious little corgis. I don't, I don't know where the corgi part came from. I get because the queen has corgis. I don't know. But that, I mean, it's it's a pretty good strategy. They used it during siege warfare during uh, medieval times as well. And, and before that, you know, Genghis Khan would come up with a city. He couldn't get in, into the gate, so he would just wait him out. Siege tactic. Um, watch them go mad inside, but they can't leave. Napoleon beat the Russians in 1807 and forced their ruler, Alexander I, to sign the Treaty of Til Tilsit for peace. And in 1809, Napoleon beat the Austrians again at the Battle of Wagram. This, of course, gave France even more land. So I have a picture. Now we're at basically the height of Napoleon's reach. And there's a map of what he had was his, what was his allies, what was technically not part of the French Empire, but uh, kind of, sort of was. Tons. The Confederation of the Rhine, basically his Kingdom of Italy, he had different parts of Italy that he had control over, Spain, all this stuff. Huge outreaching. Um, not as big as some other empires that I've talked about, like the, the Mongol Empire and stuff like that, or Alexander the Great, but still, huge parts of Europe, really hard places to take, he took over. Now, with all this land, Napoleon thought it would be nice to give some of it to his ride-or-die homies. He started giving land and nobility to his most trusted friends and consequently recreated the French aristocracy which had been violently destroyed during the French Revolution. The aristocracy basically, cre he created a whole class, the rich, basically. Um, you know, you had the, the lower class, middle class. He basically created an upper class of people that had nobilities. They were the Duke of, the Lord of, of Kingdom-esque, whatever. He created that. A whole other, the pompous French, so much better, blah, blah, blah. He created that because he had so much resources and land and just gave it to all his most trusted friends. And I got a pic I got a lot of pictures of Napoleon on this blog, but this one's the coolest. Him wearing his emperor like white fur and, and crown. So dope. I, th I I think he looks cool. That's probably the coolest outfit I've ever seen with like white silk and gold trim and a red pelt and a, a freaking scepter and a crown that looks badass. Napoleon. You look cool, man. You had one hell of a style. But here, as I talk about the highest height of Napoleon's empire, now it starts to go downhill. Like any bell curve, you get to the top and it starts going wee right down the hill. And to to enter into this part of, this, of his story, of his conquer, conquests, I'm going to give one statement. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Don't invade Russia during the winter. If it's coming to winter, get the heck out of Russia. Make plans to bug out of there. But this, this is where things started to go downhill, like I said. This was, this was not an exponentially slippery slope for Napoleon, mind you. Napoleon's flame didn't die out with a fizzle. Uh, it did die out eventually, but you'll see. He, he loses and comes back. It's crazy. He, there's, like, there's like a Napoleon sequel movie. Wasn't as great as the original, but it's still pretty cool. We'll, we'll get to it. Napoleon's flame didn't die out with a fizzle. Um, it started to die out when he made one of the greatest mistakes any military ruler could possibly make on this planet. He decided to invade Russia and didn't get out before winter. Similar to how Napoleon shared success at strangling England of its foreign imports with, uh, with you know, how he shared that with Hitler. Well, making the major mistake of invading Russia during winter was another shared characteristic these uh, European conquerors had. Historians believe that invading Russia through winter is what ultimately sealed both Napoleon and Hitler's doom. 
there's a lot of other components to both of their stories, but it really screwed them both over bad. It started with Russia deciding to withdraw from France's continental system in 1810. That's a continental system that they were used to strangle England of their imports and stuff like that. Russia's like, I'm out. I don't want to do it. The Ruskies didn't want to blockade England anymore. They decided it just didn't suit them. Well, this didn't sit well with Napoleon and his complex. His ego had grown so much at this point that instead of thinking this through, he just took a huge portion of France's fighting force straight into Russia for a full-scale invasion in the summer of 1812. The summer, you're good, but what happens after summer? Fall, and then fall in Russia doesn't last long because real soon it's winter. The Russians knew how to play this one. They didn't take on this strategic genius head-on. Instead, they would wait until Napoleon and his big ego would attack and retreat further inland. They knew Napoleon's forces were big and nasty and smart, so instead of trying to fight head-on, they decided to be the flea on the back of the lion. They pestered him and prodded his ego. And every time they did, Napoleon just bit. He just bit right onto the, 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 the trap. He just went right after them. Bit by bit, Napoleon went further and further and deeper and deeper into the heart of Russia. As the days, the weeks, and months are ticking by, you know, this started in the summer of 1812, he's getting farther north deeper into Russia with his escape, his, 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 his road back home getting longer and longer. Napoleon didn't expect a long and drawn out invasion. You know, he thought he would go in there and just kick ass. He expected his enemy to roll over. So the French troops were not prepared for a long campaign and they certainly were not prepared for the bitter cold that they were about to face. I mean, cold in Russia. You, I think it's, it's, it's cold here in Pittsburgh. I have no idea. Cold in Russia is cold, man. We talked about uh, Grigory uh, Rasputin, where he came from, and how it would get, you know, it's average like five degrees all year round. That's the average. And how Grigory Rasputin, he was shot, stabbed, strangled, you know, beaten. But the only thing that killed him was the Russian winter, the Russian cold, <laughs> because he fell in the water. Russia is cold. So, and his troops weren't prepared for that. Little Frenchies just brought baguettes and their little cardigan sweaters to fight in Russia. The Battle of Borodino ended with an indecisive result in Russia. Both sides, Russia and France, lost many troops, and French morale was dwindled. They had dwindled. Moscow is on the horizon, men, Napoleon promises troops. Think of the riches and glory. N not direct quotes, but that's what he's saying. Like, hey, I know it sucks, but Moscow, let's get to Moscow. It'll all be good once we get to Moscow. But when French forces marched into Moscow, they found no one was there. The Russians evacuated the city and told their citizens to burn the city to the ground in order to keep the Frenchies from feasting on their spoils. So there's no food. Winter's coming. And you made it all the way into the capital. What did Napoleon do? He waited. He thought if the Russians evacuated their own capital, they would surrender to him. But that didn't happen. An entire month of waiting had the Russian winter breathing down Napoleon's neck. He reluctantly ordered his forces to leave Moscow after a while without surrender uh, from his ever-fleeting enemy. He's like, well, winter is coming. I, it's pretty much here, but let's leave. But as soon as Napoleon started with, to withdraw, the Ruskies changed their tactics. Instead of employing that hit-and-run tactic of retreating all the time at the first sign of attack, oh no, oh no. Uh, the Russians were in all-out war mode now. They became super aggressive and treated the fleeing French forces without mercy. On his way out, 
of Russia, Napoleon lost an estimated half a million, 500,000 troops from his original 600,000 invasion force. That's a lot. The Russian invasion was bad, but everything happening around it made the situation even worse for Napoleon and his standing back home in France. While he was failing to invade Russia, the French were losing a six-year-long war, the Peninsular War, from 1808 to 1814, against the Spanish, Portuguese, and the British. In 1813, the Battle of Leipzig, a.k.a. the Battle of Nations, much cooler way to say that, saw the Austria-Prussian Prussian and Russian and Sweden all band together, calling themselves the coalition to show France the business. Napoleon couldn't swing that victory either, and he lost. So, not good. He can invade Russia, loses a half a million men. He then is losing the Peninsular War, and he lost to the, a coalition of four separate countries that were like, hey, <laughs> we're tired of your crap, dude. After the Battle of Nations, Napoleon turned tail and ran back to Paris, where he was pursued by the coalition. They captured the city of Paris and made Napoleon own up to his decades-long of acts of aggression, aggressive military campaigns across Europe. So, time pay the pay the pad papa. Once he gets there, after the French emperor invaded Russia and Paris, and had Paris captured, he garnered quite a negative reputation in Europe and was dethroned and lost his title of emperor. In his mid-40s, Napoleon was forced to abdicate the throne and was exiled through the Treaty of Fontainebleau, whatever, French stuff. Louis XVIII regained his French throne as King of France and exiled Napoleon to the little Italian island of Elba. Okay, sounds horrible, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, the island of Elba. And as we're reaching 30 minutes in the podcast, I'm going to have to pause it here and I can only record 30 minutes at a time. It's a free free platform. Bear with me. Okay. Thank you for waiting. We're back. Like I said, Anchor's great, but on Google, I think it's uh, Microsoft Edge, you can only record for 30 minutes at a time. Whatever. It's the way it goes. So where are we? Where do we leave off? Well... Napoleon got his ass kicked by the Russians. He also lost in the Peninsular War. And he lost to a coalition of like four different countries, kicking his country to the curb, making the public like him a little less. And yeah, he had to own up to his uh, his aggressive military ways. Um, he was a conqueror, by the way. So no, no longer emperor. Uh, king Louis XVIII kicked him out, regained his throne as uh, the, the king of France, and sent Napoleon to the little... Italian island of Elba. And like I said, sounds like a horrible punishment. Oh no. Forced to live your days out on an Italian island out in the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. I, I know the Mediterranean. It's one of the greatest places ever. <laughs> and get this, Napoleon was given sovereignty over the island. He was allowed to rule his little island. I mean, damn. Uh, but for whatever reason, his, uh, his wife and, and kid uh, did not accompany him. So they went off to Austria for whatever reason. But I think that's, I think that's insanely stupid. That's a stupid thing. One of the greatest conquerors of all time is, uh, you know, first of all, let allowed to to live after all his war crimes and aggressiveness. Not only allowed to live, he all his supporters still in contact with him, and is able to rule an island filled with people that he can also get 
you know, get with his charm to, to be on his side. But I don't know. So what's what's going to happen? Well, this is Napoleon we're talking about here. Within 100 days of his exile, that's it, 100 days from King Louis the 18th, he escaped this island and was able to get back into France. He sailed to France with about a thousand supporters and for some reason his enemies thought it would be fine to give him one of the most give one of the most charismatic and politically powerful men in history rule over his own island like the dude isn't going to gather support and try something and he did and he succeeded he gets into france king louis hears about it starts freaking out because king louis is kind of an idiot and he sends troops to go take care of napoleon like hey man uh, he's freaking out. He sends a whole huge battalion after a dude with a thousand supporters with him. They're not really particularly armed well. It's just Napoleon and, and a thousand people there to help him, to support him. He sent, King Louis sends a huge force of French troops to subdue him, capture him. What happens? This is what I think is the most impressive and exciting part of Napoleon's story. It was here where Napoleon convinced King Louis's army, troops who formerly served under Napoleon... To not only let him go, but to betray their official monarch, their official ruler, and join forces back with Napoleon again. They went up there, they were sent by the king, you know, and with threat of treason, with threat of losing their lives, put down their weapons, shook hands with Napoleon, picked their weapons back up, and then followed him to Paris. Napoleon, officially a fugitive in his own country, now had rallied the armed forces sent to capture him to his side. He rode into Paris, welcomed by a roaring crowd. King Louis XVIII fled like a little, ba little, like a little baby, fled the country. France had chosen their true ruler. It was Napoleon. They didn't want this this sissy Louis XVIII trying to rule them. He's an incompetent ruler. No, they wanted Napoleon back, and he was back. This is when Napoleon started the Hundred Days Campaign. All of Napoleon's old enemies that had been bullied for the, the last several decades by him, who thought, you know, we had they thought they had finally gotten rid of this rabid Frenchie with the unfathomable, cunt, unfathomable cunning military mind were now shitting bricks. They were, <laughs> they thought they'd finally got rid of him. They got, they put the king, helped get the king back in power, sent him to a little island, thought he, they'd never hear from him again. He's back. And within no time had his people it's crazy. Napoleon was back from nowhere and Europe was sweating. They all heard how he was able to come from a tiny exile island to emperor within less than a year, fearing vengeance. Austria, Britain, Prussia, and the Russians started preparing for war. Napoleon rallied an army in no time. No time. Had a huge force of people just like, just, oh my gosh, the, 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 the national pride, the, the patriotic pride the French must have felt this time, like, yes, let's do it. Let's get back to kicking ass. They wanted this to happen. This is that sequel I was talking about. They thought he was done with the exile. Nope, he's back. They decided to strike his enemy before they could raise armies of their own, the substantial armies. He wanted to take them down one by one before they could band together. He started his preemptive strike in Belgium. There he met the British and Prussian forces on June 16th. Napoleon wiped the floor with them at the Battle of Ligny. And people are like, heck, yes, let's do it. Napoleon's back. Europe's knees were knocking. But then just two days later after his victory at Ligny on June 18th was the infamous Battle of Waterloo. Now, could you imagine Napoleon's ego is probably bigger than ever. Thought he was down, came back, 
won his first battle, huge army, rally, people just just rushing to his side. One of the most, and now so he gets to Waterloo and he thinks, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna wipe the floor. One of the most famous battles of all time, one of the most important battles in history, Waterloo saw Napoleon's forces absolutely crushed to oblivion. Why he lost is up for debate. English sources, English language sources, were written by the English, uh, will tell you that it was due to English bravery, yada yada, and how you know Napoleon is inferior, whatever. Others say it was because Napoleon uh, was well past his prime, fat, suffering from hemorrhoids, and lethargic. His orders were belated, and he delegated command of most of his army to young, inexperienced, and incompetent generals. So whatever you believe, he lost Waterloo. If you want to learn about Waterloo, there's a movie called Waterloo, and it's amazing. Check it out. Also, tons of videos. This time, his enemies were not taking any chances with this powerhouse of charisma and strategic force that is Napoleon I. This time, England banished Napoleon to a small island in the South Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Africa called St. Helena, even farther away, really far. There, Napoleon would live out the rest of his life, and that's where he died in 1821. He was buried in the island of St. Helena against his witches, which were to be laid to rest, quote, on the banks of the Seine among the French people I have loved so much. But he wasn't. He was buried in St. Helena. But in 1840, his body was taken to France and entombed in a crypt in Les Invalides in Paris. This is where French military leaders are laid to rest. It's a fitting spot for him. Some quotes from me, from Napoleon. The only way to lead people is to show them a future. A leader is a dealer in hope. Never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. That's my favorite. Envy is a declaration of inferiority. The reason most people fail instead of succeed is they trade what they want most for what they want in the moment. And if you wish to be a success in the world, promise everything, deliver nothing. This episode was originally supposed to be just about the bizarre story of Napoleon's wiener, <laughs> believe it or not, and how his mummified pee-pee was stolen and sold on black markets or whatever for the past few centuries. I was going to look into it. I thought it was black markets. It's a little bit different than that. But but then I felt the need to go over this man's extraordinary life. So what I just read to you, his military career, rise to power, life as an emperor, and downfall, that was all just a really long intro. <laughs> now we get into the episode was originally going to be about Napoleon's Schlong. Don't worry, it's not like the halfway mark. This is this episode's almost done. So how did did Napoleon die? Like, you know, we know that he died, but good question. One of that is debated to this very day. One of the leading theories is that he died of stomach cancer. The little emperor was always painted with his uh, his portraits with his hand in his vest. They thought this was what he was doing to relieve pain originating from from his gut from stomach cancer. Just an idea. We don't actually know. But who knows? So Napoleon's tomb is located now in Paris. His body is kept in a huge granite sarcophagus, which is housed inside a giant, even huger dome with beautiful art in the walls and ceiling. You know, very grand thing. And it's just a dude in a, in a box. But his sarcophagus doesn't contain all of Napoleon's remains, uh, at least not according to most people. You see, when Napoleon died in 1821, the French doctor, Francesco Otto Marquis, uh, decided to uh, wild, be wildly unprofessional, as many 19th century doctors were known to do. He <laughs> just be medical. Pra I'm so glad I live in the century I live in because medical practices back then 
just awful. Anyway, this uh, the Dr. Francesco, he took souvenirs like Napoleon's rib and more notably his penis. <laughs> How do we know that the good doctor took his penis? Was he in some dark room somewhere by himself doing this shady stuff? Nope. There were 17 people, 17 eyewitnesses watching him do this, take a rib and cut his, his, his wiener off. As I mentioned earlier, the rest of his body is buried in St. Helena Island on, was buried on English ruled Island. Uh, but because they don't know what to label the grave of their enemy, emperor, war criminal, whatever, um, it's a toss up in, in, you know, what to call him. Just unremarkably, his grave was marked, here lies Napoleon. That's, that's, that's not fitting. Then his body was taken to Paris, as I said, to be entombed where it is now. Fun fact, all the parallels I made between Napoleon and Hitler earlier, well, Hitler personally visited Napoleon's tomb during World War II. I'm starting to think these two were like Sith master and apprentice from the Star Wars or something. There's, there's some weird connection that you can draw. But anyway, after Dr. Uh, Francois, or Francesco Francois, uh, takes the penis off the dead body, he gifts it to Napoleon's chaplain, Abba Ang Vignali. Because, uh, you know, who doesn't want a shriveled emperor penis? Am I right? Uh, am I right? Vignali takes the penis to the French island of Corsica. That's where um, Napoleon was born. But he is killed in a blood vendetta because that's the sort of stuff that happened in 19th century Europe, apparently. But Vignali made sure his family kept the Napoleon penis as a family heirloom. They didn't lose it. They kept it for over a century. And I... <laughs> Because it stayed in the family for that long, I think it's funny. It leads one to believe that his family um, did write in their last wills and testaments, you know, who gets the shriveled Napoleon weenie. If it's that long, they had to pass it down. So, Or they kept it on a mantle somewhere. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I promise I'm not making this up. They took his took his weenie. It's a family heirloom. They're handing it down to people. You know, you know, <laughs> cousin Jeremy gets the, the Napoleon dick but <laughs> then in 1924 the penis winds up in england in uh the possession of a book salesman uh this dude cataloged the penis as quote a mummified tendon hence the name of the podcast napoleon and his tendon because that's the official name for it but mr book salesman decided to sell it uh, to an english collector asw rosenbach for 400 bucks or 400 british pounds rosenbach brought the mummy pp the mummified pp to philadelphia pennsylvania usa hours from where I'm recording this right now, <laughs> an hour's drive or six hours drive. Rosenbach got the penis to go on display at the French art museum in New York city. And the newspaper articles described it as unimpressive. I mean, it's just a mummy, mummy wieners, wiener, <laughs> but in 1969, the museum is not doing so well financially. And they try to sell the penis back to Paris at auction, but they don't want it. <laughs> the museum says, well, do you want it for free? Huh? And the French are like, nah, dude, I don't want Napoleon's supposed weenie. I don't want it. <laughs> then eight years later, the penis is sold to a one Dr. John K. Latimer. This is the craziest dude in the, in the, in the Napoleon weenie story. Dr. <laughs> Dr. John K. Latimer is one of the leading urologists in America at the time. And he bought this thing for $3,000. <laughs> and just think of what he put that in his waiting room. Like, I'm a urologist. Come on down and see napoleon's weenie in my waiting room dr latimer <laughs> latimer was also the urologist hired for the nuremberg trials if you've ever heard of the nuremberg trials you'll know that he was the urologist for all the nazis on trial after world war ii like what what i'm convinced napoleon and hitler are like linked somehow by some conspiracy theorist thing i don't know <laughs> so many 
parallels I'm seeing here. Dr. Latimer also worked on the JFK assassination. I'm literally hearing conspiracy theorists go like, ah, ah, this, you, you can't deny it. <laughs> JFK, the Nazis, Napoleon. <laughs> he worked on the JFK assassination, keeping a part of the upholstery of the, of the car JFK was shot in. It had a blood stain and everything. Dr. Latimer also has the bloodstained collar of Abraham Lincoln. Two other famous people that have a lot of parallels, JFK and Lincoln. So, but what became of the penis? What happened? I hear you. Call to me. Tell us what happened to the penis. I will tell you, my Huda Thunkers. Dr. Latimer didn't dedicate it to a museum or anything. He brought it back to his home in New Jersey, where his family still has it. Let it be known, there have been x-rays done on this thing, and all they could confirm is that, yep, it's a penis. They can't confirm it's... They can't confirm it's Napoleon's. There's no DNA. So, they, yeah, it is a penis. We don't know if it's Napoleon's. That's the official ruling there. So I have it. I have a picture of it in the blog. It's in New Jersey. <laughs> it looks weird. It looks like a rock. It's not explicit. It just looks like a rock. It's, it's kind of weird. That's it. That's my story of Napoleon and his, his mummified tendon. Thank you for listening. Who to Thunkers? I hope you enjoyed this. I knew it was going to be a long one. I loved writing this one. Might be my favorite to one to write so far after three years of doing this so thanks for listening until next week the penis was one and a half inches long in case you're wondering mummified not we don't know if that's what how it was living but yeah i knew you're i knew you're wondering how long his penis went one and a half inches mummified <laughs> thanks for listening who to thunkers tune in next week <laughs>